0: Let's pray just now. Father God, we know that your word is your power at work in this world. We know that when you spoke, you you birthed this world, creation itself, a result of your word spoken. We know that your word sustained your people. For, for generations and for centuries. And Lord, we've been celebrating just now that moment when your word, your will in this world became flesh and we saw we saw you embodied in Jesus. Lord, we know that it's still your word that, that changes us, that does new things in us, that creates new life. So we pray that by your Spirit, you take your written Word and make it live for us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, if you could flick in your Bibles to the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1 on page 965. Be a useful passage to have open before you uh, as I share for just a couple of moments now. Page 965, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family, they say. Now, when you've just spent a couple of days, or or you're maybe in the middle of it with your family, I I don't know how that rings to you, that truism, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, But either way, It's simply true. We don't get to choose our families. Now, what if we did get to choose our families? Imagine that before you had formed any emotional attachments with any people in particular, before you'd had any disappointments with any particular family that you were born into, imagine you were shown the whole array of humanity were able somehow to get an insight into what life in that family would be like, and then you were asked, you choose. Take a pick. Which of these many, many families do you want to be born into? What do you want your parents to be like? What kind of siblings would you like to have? How much power and influence and wealth Are you going to choose? You get to choose your own family. Imagine being faced with a dilemma like that. It would focus the mind, wouldn't it? Wouldn't our thought processes and our final decision tell us a lot about who we are? what's important to us what we think life is really all about how we make that one decision would give incontrovertible evidence of the nature of our heart the outcome of that decision be there for all to see folks it's true though we can't choose our family so we're never going to be faced with a decision like that so why am i asking you to consider that question this christmas time It's because we have just celebrated the birth of the one person in the whole history of humanity who got to choose his family. Jesus Christ, very God come among us. When he took on humanity, he got to choose which family he would be born into. And I said a moment ago that being faced with a decision like that would tell us a lot about who we are Uh, The outcome of that decision, the family that we chose to be born into would indicate what's important to us, what we think life's all about. Well, let's take just a few moments this morning and apply that test to Jesus. What does his choice of his family tell us about who Jesus is and what's important to him? Well, let's meet the family. That's why I've asked you to turn up Matthew chapter 1 Matthew begins his gospel, some people think it's a pretty slow start, if you're trying to grab people's attention and get a story up and running, giving a telephone directory of names at the front doesn't seem to be all that gripping. But guided by God's Holy Spirit, this is how Matthew chooses to, to start his, his gospel, his account of Jesus Christ. He tells us about Abraham being the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and so on and so on. Let's see what we can learn looking at this family tree of Jesus. The first thing about Jesus' family tree is quite obvious, and I think it's so obvious that we might easily miss it. But the family tree reminds us that Jesus is human. There are a lot of people there, a lot of human beings that came before Jesus did in this family. I think most of us believe that Jesus was God come among us, living a fully human life. But we struggle with that, I think. I know I do. I know I find that hard to conceive of, the, the full humanity of Jesus. But here he is. He had a mum. If, if you've been watching the nativity that the BBC have put on just in the week running up to Christmas, you'll see she's depicted there as very young, 16-year-old. And that's quite likely So she's probably a young Jewish teenager. Although his birth was unique, conceived as he was by the Holy Spirit, she will have carried him for nine months. Did you ever consider that Mary may have had morning sickness? Did you ever consider that a point came in her pregnancy when she maybe found it difficult to to get sleep at night because of the shape that she'd grown to be? We know that Jesus didn't cry at his birth because the... The carol away in a manger assures us of that. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. But what about his mum? Giving birth with no epidural or gas in the air. Mary cried out at the birth of Jesus because he was a real baby carried by a real mother and delivered by a real birth. Jesus was human, fully human. He had a father, at least that was Joseph's role for this unique child. And even though Joseph may have had some misgivings about his conception, I'm sure eventually Joseph and his father Jacob were won over by their new grandson. I'm sure it warmed his heart to see his son feeding at, at his mother's breast Pooping and doing all the things that newborn babies do. Over the years, he'll have enjoyed watching as Jesus learned to crawl and to walk and to talk. Folks, here we see the great miracle of Christmas, that God becomes human. Remember how John describes it in John chapter 1? The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So Jesus' family tree reminds us firstly that God became human. Let's notice some other things about the family tree that Almighty God chose, the family he chose to be born into. The tree begins with Abram, the father of Isaac. And you'll notice that there's no mention of Ishmael. Ishmael is Abraham's oldest son. We read on that Isaac is the father of Jacob. Again, Esau, the older son, is not mentioned. It's Jacob who's mentioned. Jacob who stole his brother's inheritance for a pot of lentil stew. We read on and it says that Jacob's the father of Judah. And this time Judah is the eldest son. Why is Judah chosen and not Joseph, who's the good and faithful son? What's going on here? Well, it seems that in scene one of his gospel, Matthew is reminding us of these Old Testament stories, and he's reminding us that God doesn't necessarily choose the best or the most deserving. For some reason, God chooses Judas, who sell their brothers into slavery. He chooses Jacobs, who get to the top by cheating. And reading down the list, we see that he chooses Davids, who steal wives, and who murder to cover their actions. This family that God's chosen to get involved in, it makes some interesting reading when you look at these names. We see here, folks, that God not only became human, but he also chose to be involved in a flawed and sinful family. That's not all, though, that's strange about this family. If you have a a careful look at this family tree, you'll notice that Matthew's record focuses on men. I hope hope that's not controversial to you. I didn't write this. Matthew did, and anybody writing a family tree in these days would have written only the names of the men of each generation. Actually, four times Matthew breaks with convention because four times... He chooses to mention women. First, there's Tamar in verse 3. You might know her story, but you could read it in Genesis 38. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah, one of Israel's great leaders. Her husband died, and in the culture of the day, it was Judah's responsibility to make sure that she got a new husband. And the reason was economics, basically. She needed somebody to look after her. to to make sure that she was provided for. Judah didn't fulfill his responsibility. In a scandalous story, we we learn that Tamar resorted to prostitution, pretending to be a prostitute. She ends up getting pregnant, but that's not the worst of it. The real scandal is that Tamar gets pregnant by none other than Judah himself, He's used the services of this anonymous prostitute. So here you have one of the leaders of Israel who's refused to give this woman what she should have had and then goes and and takes advantage of her in an entirely different way. It's a completely sordid episode in the history of Israel. The first woman mentioned in Jesus' family tree. Who's the second? Verse 5, we see Rahab. You might remember her. From your Sunday school days, you coloured in the picture of Rahab at the the window in the wall of Jericho, and you threw a piece of red wool through the window to remind us of the rope that the, the spies used to escape. If if you remember Rahab, I remember learning about her. She was kind of like a, a an innkeeper, a, a sort of the sort of person you'd see smiling down from the Jericho tourist board website, um, ready to welcome you into her four star. B&B. That's Rahab. Bad news is, that's probably not who Rahab is. She's probably a prostitute as well. Um, second person mentioned in Jesus' family tree. Next one on the list is Ruth. You'll remember Ruth, maybe, from the story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. She's a uh, a foreign daughter-in-law of Naomi, and she comes back with Naomi from the land of Moab, you know, into Israel. So she's part of the the immigrant population. Uh, She's an ethnic minority in Israel. And the final woman in the family tree is referred to as Uriah's wife. Just to remind you of the details there, King David committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. He then had Uriah killed as part of his sordid cover up. So, David's relationship with Bathsheba is just one huge blot on the history of Israel and of, of its great king David. Remember what we're doing here. We're taking account of the fact that God chose the family that he would be born into. And now we're having a look at that family to see what its qualities and characteristics are. And we're trying to work out what Jesus' choice of a family teaches us about God. What's important to him? What does he really want his life to be all about? We've looked through the archives, we've seen these hair raising discoveries. Among Jesus' ancestors, we found a fraudster, a slave trader, a few prostitutes with illegitimate children, a few foreigners, not to mention incidents of adultery and murder. Jesus' family tree makes for pretty embarrassing reading. And now three of these women, we've learned, have question marks over their sexual conduct. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, even Ruth, wasn't the sort of person you'd want in a Jewish family tree. She was a foreigner, an outsider. And no self-respecting Jew would have wanted a foreigner in their family tree. Folks, when you take this as a whole, you realize that Jesus has more than his fair share of skeletons in his closet. So what does all this tell us about God? It seems to me that by being born into just this family, Jesus started out exactly as he meant to continue. You see, Jesus came into the world to save tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners, and that's why he started by being born into just such a family. He came into the world to welcome outsiders. That's why he started in a family that had its fair share of unwelcome foreigners. In Jesus, God came to heal those who needed a doctor. So we started off in a family just as sick as mine and as yours. A few years ago, I got a a wonderful Christmas card and I wanted to show it to you. Graham, if we could pop up that first slide. You won't be able to read it at the back, but you you may be able to see the the shape of it. It shows two wee boys. One of them looks really smiley and conscientious. And the caption beside him says, This year, as usual, Santa Claus will bring all the kids who've been really good something nice for Christmas. You maybe remember the iconic uh, Coca-Cola Christmas advert where Santa stands in front of the fireplace and he reaches up onto the mantelpiece, And he takes a good look at the book of good girls and boys. Because that's Santa's job. To keep a track of who's good and then make sure that they're rewarded. The other boy in our Christmas card doesn't look quite so conscientious and smiley. And the caption beside him says, The best present, however, is reserved for those who've been really bad. Funny, isn't it? And inside the card, we read the verse that we read earlier this morning. Graham, the second slide. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Folks, we have grown up believing that Santa only comes to good boys and girls. And that's fair enough. I don't want to change what you believe about Santa and good boys and girls. Trouble is when we think God's like that too, somewhere, and maybe very subtly, we have this picture of God that he too only comes to good and respectable people. Maybe you've... Decided that God would never come to you because you don't think you qualify. You've given up expecting anything much from God. Surely God would never come anywhere near me. He knows that I drink, or He knows how much I drink. I've managed to keep it from others, but He knows. He knows about the stuff I look at on the internet. He knows about my work and about my tax scams. And he knows about the things that happen in my home and in my marriage. There's no way I'm good enough. No way that he will come to me. Folks, the gospel story begins with a Christmas episode of amazing grace. And this record of Jesus' family tree reminds us that it's simply not a question of being good enough. That question's no longer valid since Jesus was born. God didn't come to be with people who were good He wasn't born into a family that had it all together. His family, his own family that he chose to be a part of, was one long line of sinners. Folks, that's, isn't that the whole point of Christmas? Jesus came to be born into a family of sinners so that he could bring more sinners Sinners like me and like you into his family. In the opening chapter of his gospel, John puts it like this To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Doesn't matter what our family's like, doesn't matter what we're like, to all who received him not to the good boys and girls, not to the nice people, not to the respectable, to all who received him. Folks, maybe you have always somehow imagined that this was for everyone else. All the churchy, respectable people that you think you see all around you and you've never understood that this is for you. This Christmas time I invite you to get to know the real Jesus Christ. The one who came into this world lived among sinners that he might welcome more sinners into this family of those whom he accepts and loves. Let us pray. Father God, we have often got this wrong about you. We have imagined that you're a God who is for good people. That we have to reach a certain point or level before, before we can be yours. Lord, clear this up in our minds just now by your Spirit. Lord, help us each one to know that just as we are now, we're ready to receive you and your mercy and your grace. Lord, in the church, we have sometimes represented life with God or life in the church as just this kind of respectable good life. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to, to clothe ourselves in, in an honesty, open and honest about our sinfulness, our brokenness, and our fallenness. Lord, doing that all the while so that your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness will be all the greater. Father God, thank you that Jesus came into the world not for the healthy, but for the sick. And we pray that we, every one of us, would receive the healing that he's come to bring. Amen.